I grew up in a really cautious home. Uh, there were lots of rules and boundaries to keep us in line and out of trouble and to keep us safe. But then somehow now um, I have raised two boys who are junkies for adrenaline and fear. I think they get it from their father. Um, when they were babies, Dave would balance them on his hand standing up like this. And they would giggle as he like swooped them down out of the air and into his arms. And he got yelled at that by strangers in public. <laughs> They got older and they would hide in like the darkest corners of our hallways and jump out at each other and then they would like scream and laugh all at the same time. They would wait in line forever to get the very first row of a roller coaster. When they went skiing and barely knew how, they would go down like the black diamond slope just fully confident that that would work out. <clears throat> the moment my older one uh, turned 18, he decided to go skydiving um, and so he jumped out of a plane at 18,000 feet up in the air as a thank you to me for keeping him alive for 18 years. So my kids love fear. They love that kind of fear. And maybe you haven't jumped out of planes. I certainly have not and will not. Uh, but we've all experienced that kind of fear that I think they're chasing. As kids, it, it, you know, it was that fear that you were afraid, but it also kind of drew you in instead of pushing you away. Maybe it was the thrill of hide and seek in the dark in your house. Maybe it's that moment when you're on the swing and it got all the way up at the top and you were just sure, like, it might just fly off into the sky. Maybe it was the first time you watched a scary movie. You know, your heart pounds and, and your palms get sweaty and you're terrified, but somehow you also want to do it all over again and over and over. We've been talking the past few weeks about what it means to have faith like a child in our sermon series called Wonder and how that kind of faith reignites our sense of wonder and of being alive. Today I'd like to talk about fear because I'm willing to bet that as you come into church, uh, as you come in here, most of us, you know, we don't get that heart pounding, tingling feeling up our spine feeling that you had on a roller coaster as a kid. That maybe when you pray or you read your Bible, you don't get like a rush of fear as you do that. When your kids head off to Sunday school or to youth group, you probably don't like put them in a helmet and hug them and be like, please be careful. But maybe you should. Maybe you should. Because somewhere along the way, we believed all the scriptures that said, do not be afraid. And those are good. But we forgot the ones like these that say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear God and keep his commandments. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We don't talk about the fear of God a lot. We talk a lot about do not be afraid, but the fear of God, we don't do that. And in fact, I think many of us have lost our fear of God altogether. And maybe it's because we've put God in a box. We grow up and we like things to be controllable predictable, safe. So we take God and we try and make God fit all of those categories and we make God smaller. We limit what God can be involved in in our lives. We put caveats in our prayers and we turn the living God into a set of belief statements that feel really safe to us. And then something difficult comes along. You know, the world has like super big problems and your personal life has really hard things happening. But then if you have this 
this small and, and tamed version of God that you've created because it felt safe. Now what? How do you trust that small and safe and tamed God with the really big stuff that happens in the world? In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, there's a conversation that's happening between this mythical creature, Mr. Beaver, and this young girl named Lucy as they talk about Narnia. And they're talking specifically about Aslan, who's this king of Narnia where the story is set. It says this, Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe? said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king, I tell you. We grow up. We read stories like that, but then we grow up, and we lose our fear of things like the dark or the monsters that might be under the bed, but I think when we throw that out, we also leave behind with it the good kind of fear, the fear that makes our heart pound and our knees knock because we're in the presence of something great. It's that kind of fear that draws us in instead of pushing us away. That's the kind of fear that we should feel in the presence of God. That's what we should feel when we come into God's presence because God is so much bigger than us. You know, when we fear the Lord, God becomes like Aslan in Narnia. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. And all at once it makes us feel afraid, but we also just feel drawn into his presence. The people in the Christmas story that we've heard a little bit from John this morning and that we'll hear read a lot this week knew this God really well. Zechariah and Elizabeth would become the parents of John the Baptist. And they would talk, John the Baptist would go on to tell everyone about Jesus before he was even born. They were this super righteous couple, and they had done everything right, and they had this deep and abiding faith in God, but they had no children, and they were really old. And then one day, Zechariah is going about his priestly work, and in Luke 1, it tells us, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. So this wasn't even God, it was a messenger for God, an angel, and Zechariah is terrified. Then it goes on, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. The message that they would have a child at this point in their lives was terrifying enough. Can you imagine? But then it couldn't have been quite as terrifying as meeting that angel. Then later in the story, we meet Mary who will become the mother of Jesus, Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. 
Now, it doesn't say Mary was terrified. It does say she was perplexed, (laughs) I bet. But she must have shown some fear because it immediately goes on in verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. All right, fast forward a little more. Angel shows up again, this time to the shepherds, who would have been the last group in the whole world to expect God to show up to them in any form. They were total outcasts because of the kind of work they did. But it says in Luke 2, in that same region, there were shepherds living in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Right, so again, a messenger from God shows up, and the immediate reaction is fear. Shepherds are terrified. Verse 10, the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for see, I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. All right, in the Christmas story, over and over again, we see the same pattern. God comes, God shows up. People are afraid, terrified, at least perplexed. But why? Why were they afraid? All right, partly because like an angel showed up in the middle of nowhere. Like you're hanging out, you're tending sheep, an angel appears. It's going gonna, it's gonna to terrify you for a second. But I believe at a bigger level, it's because they had fear because their God was not small, like ours is sometimes. The more they knew about God, the more their knees would knock at the thought of him then they weren't afraid because God was mean or vindictive or couldn't be trusted, but because God was God. Not a religion, not a belief system, not one of many options of something you can do on Sunday for an hour. God was God, the great God of the whole universe, God who had done remarkable things. That God shows up to you personally. Big things were about to happen. Their lives were for sure going to be turned upside down. And they were right about that, especially Mary. So they were afraid. But here's what's interesting to me. They don't run away. The story doesn't end with, like, the shepherds hiding behind the sheep. You know, take them. (laughs) Or Mary running off into the woods to get as far away as she can. They're afraid. But their fear is in the right place, and it's in the one that draws them close. Having faith like Mary and Zechariah and the shepherds, it doesn't mean that we don't fear. It doesn't mean that we're not afraid. It means we don't fear the wrong things. Oswald Chambers is a great writer, and he says this, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. I love that. There are plenty of things you can be afraid of. Maybe you're afraid of what's going to happen in the future. Maybe you're afraid of what people think of you. That one's hard. Maybe you're afraid you're going to lose your security or your money or your health or a relationship that's really important to you. Maybe you're just afraid of the unknown, just all of it. You wake up and you're like, it's just too much. But the only thing that's really worthy of our fear and our awe and our respect is God. And here's the best part. When you fear God, you don't need to fear anything else. That's all you need. 
When you have a healthy fear of God, it doesn't mean you want to run away from God or that you're terrified to pray or to go to church, but it means you see God for who God really is. God gets really big. You let God out of the box. And you see this God who's like all-powerful and all-knowing and knows you and knows the world and knows what you need, knows your heart. This God who is huge and beyond all the limits of time. God who was there in the beginning and who will be there in the end. God who could stop the world from spinning right now, right now, if God wanted to. Some of you haven't bought your Christmas presents yet, and you're like, that'd be all right. God can turn your life upside down in one breath. And that same God, that huge God, is drawing close to you, coming up alongside of you. That should make your heart beat faster. It should. Uh, William Eisenhower wrote this about the fear of God, and it's a little longer quote, but he just says it so well. The Bible reports that confronting God is a dreadful experience, yet fear does not have to have the last word. Those who are shaken to the core are told, fear not. We have to conclude that while an unfiltered experience is terrifying, it also brings an unshakable reassurance. We are unsettled from our false securities, but then resettled in the security of God's love. Unfortunately, now listen, if, you, if you're not paying attention, listen, listen. Unfortunately, he writes, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is scarier than the world by far. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. Yet, if wisdom starts with fear, it does not end there. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. That he stands against my delusions, but not against the truth that sets me free. That he cast me down, but only to lift me up. That he sits in judgment of my sin, but forgives me nonetheless. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love is its completion. To have childlike faith doesn't mean you don't fear. But it does mean that you try to put all of that fear in the right place, a fear of the Lord. Because when you do that, you don't have to be afraid of anything else. Because standing right beside you is the king, strong and powerful like a lion. And even though we have a healthy fear of the lion and it makes our heart beat a little bit fast, we know that he is good. So even when we're afraid, we still want to run right to him. I'm going to stop there for today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time and your scripture today. And God, we come to you both with fear and love, awe and wonder. Help us, God, to put all of that in your hands. And to know, God, that even when we feel afraid, we can run right to you. Because we know that you're good. And that's all we need. Bless us, God, that we'd let go of anything else we're afraid of right now. And put all of our trust in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.